0: Book 4, section 17 through 20 of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book 4, The Will of King Cole. Section 17. Edward turned upon his brother. Now what the devil did you want to put me through a scene like that for? so undignified, so utterly uncalled for, a quarrel with a man so far beneath you. Hal stood where the superintendent had left him. He was looking at his brother's angry face. Was that all you got out of it, Edward? All that stuff about your private character! What do you care what a fellow like Cartwright thinks about you? I care nothing at all what he thinks— "'but I care about having him use such a slander. "'That's one of their regular procedures, so Billy Keating says.' "'Edward answered coldly, "'Take my advice, and realize that when you deny a scandal "'you only give it circulation.' "'Of course,' answered Hal, "'that's what makes me so angry. "'Think of the girl, the harm done to her.' "'It's not up to you to worry about the girl.' Suppose that Cartwright had slandered some woman friend of yours. Would you have felt the same indifference? He'd not have slandered any friend of mine. I choose my friends more carefully. Yes, of course. What that means is that you choose them among the rich. But I happen to be more democratic in my tastes. Oh, for heaven's sake, cried Edward. You reformers are all alike. You talk and talk and talk. I can tell you the reason for that, Edward. A man like you can shut his eyes, but he can't shut his ears. Well, can't you let up on me for a while? Long enough to get out of this place? I feel as if I were sitting on the top of a volcano, and I've no idea when it may break out again. Hal began to laugh. All right, he said. I guess I haven't shown much appreciation of your visit. I'll be more sociable now. My next business is in Pedro, so I'll go that far with you. There's one thing more. What is it? The company owes me money. What money? Some I've earned. It was Edward's turn to laugh. Enough to buy you a shave and a bath? He took out his wallet and pulled off several bills, and Hal, watching him, realized suddenly a change which had taken place in his own psychology. Not merely had he acquired the class consciousness of the working man, he had acquired the money consciousness as well. He was actually concerned about the dollars the company owed him. He had earned those dollars by back and heart-breaking toil, lifting lumps of coal into cars the sum was enough to keep the whole Rafferty family alive for a week or two. And here was Edward, with a smooth brown leather wallet full of ten and twenty-dollar bills, which he peeled off without counting, exactly as if money grew on trees, or as if coal came out of the earth and walked into furnaces to the sound of a fiddle and a flute. Edward had, of course, no idea of these abnormal processes going on in his brother's mind. He was holding out the bills. "'Get yourself some decent things,' he said. "'I hope you don't have to stay dirty in order to feel democratic.' "'No,' answered Hal, and then, "'how are we going?' "'I've a car waiting, back of the office.' "'So you had everything ready?' BUT EDWARD MADE NO ANSWER, AFRAID OF SETTING OFF THE VOLCANO AGAIN. END OF SECTION SEVENTEEN SECTION EIGHTEEN THEY WENT OUT BY THE REAR DOOR OF THE OFFICE, ENTERED THE CAR, AND SPED OUT OF THE VILLAGE, UNSEEN BY THE CROWD and all the way down the canyon Edward pleaded with Hal to drop the controversy and come home at once. He brought up the tragic question of Dad again. When that did not avail, he began to threaten. Suppose Hal's money resources were to be cut off. Suppose he were to find himself left out of his father's will. What would he do then? Hal answered, without a smile. I can always get a job as organizer for the United Mine Workers." So Edward gave up that line of attack. "'If you won't come,' he declared, "'I'm going to stay by you till you do.' "'All right,' said Hal. He could not help smiling at this dire threat. "'But if I take you about and introduce you to my friends, you must agree that what you hear shall be confidential.' The other made a face of disgust. What the devil would I want to talk about your friends for? I don't know what might happen, said Hal. You're going to meet Peter Harrigan and take his side, and I can't tell what you might conceive it your duty to do. The other exclaimed with sudden passion, I'll tell you right now, "'If you try to go back to that coal camp, I swear to God I'll apply to the courts and have you shut up in a sanitarium. I don't think I'd have much trouble in persuading a judge that you're insane.' "'No,' said Hal, with a laugh, "'not a judge in this part of the world.' Then, after studying his brother's face for a moment, it occurred to him that it might be well not to let such an idea rest unimpeached in edward's mind wait said he till you meet my friend billy keating of the gazette and hear what he would do with such a story billy is crazy to have me turn him loose to play up my fight with old peter the conversation went no farther but hal was sure that edward would put that in his pipe and smoke it. They came to the Mackellar home in Pedro, and Edward waited in the automobile while Hal went inside. The old Scotchman welcomed him warmly, and told him what news he had. Jerry Minetti had been there that morning, and Mackellar, at his request, had telephoned to the office of the Union in Sheridan, and ascertained that Jack David had brought word about the strike on the previous evening. All parties had been careful not to mention names, for leaks in the telephone were notorious, but it was clear who the messenger had been. As a result of the message, Johann Hartmann, president of the local union of the miners, was now at the American Hotel in Pedro together with James Moylan, secretary of the district organization, the latter having come down from Western City on the same train as Edward. This was all satisfactory, but McKellar added a bit of information of desperate import. The officers of the Union declared that they could not support a strike at the present time. It was premature, It could lead to nothing but failure and discouragement to the larger movement they were planning. Such a possibility Hal had himself realized at the outset. But he had witnessed the new birth of freedom at North Valley. He had seen the hungry, toil-worn faces of men looking up to him for support. He had been moved by it and had come to feel that the Union officials must be moved in the same way. "'They've simply got to back it!' he exclaimed. "'Those men must not be disappointed. They'll lose all hope. They'll sink into utter despair. The labor men must realize that. I must make them!' The old Scotchman answered that Minetti had felt the same way. He had flung caution to the winds, and rushed over to the hotel to see Hartman and Moylan. Hal decided to follow, and went out to the automobile. He explained matters to his brother, whose comment was, of course, it was what he had foretold. The poor, misguided miners would go back to their work, and their would-be leader would have to admit the folly of his course. There was a train for Western City in a couple of hours. It would be a great favor if Hal would arrange to take it. Hal answered shortly that he was going to the American Hotel. His brother might take him there if he chose. So Edward gave the order to the driver of the car. Incidentally, Edward began asking about clothing stores in Pedro. While Hal was in the hotel pleading for the life of his newly-born labor union, Edward would seek a costume in which he could feel like a human being. End of Section 18 Section 19 Hal found Jerry Minetti with the two officials in their hotel room. Jim Moylan, district secretary, a long, towering Irish boy, black-eyed and black-haired, quick and sensitive, the sort of person one trusted and liked at the first moment, and Johann Hartmann, local president, a gray-haired miner of German birth, reserved and slow-spoken, evidently a man of much strength, both physical and moral. He had need of it, any one could realize, "'having charge of a Union headquarters in the heart of this Empire of Raymond.'" Hal first told of the kidnapping of the committee. This did not surprise the officials, he found. It was the thing the companies regularly did when there was threat of rebellion in the camps. That was why efforts to organize openly were so utterly hopeless. There was no chance for anything but a secret propaganda— maintained until every camp had the nucleus of an organization. "'So you can't back this strike!' exclaimed Hal. "'Not possibly,' was Moylan's reply. "'It would be lost as soon as it was begun. "'There was no slightest hope of success "'until a lot of organization work had been done.' "'But meantime,' argued Hal, the union at North Valley will go to pieces. Perhaps, was the reply, we'll only have to start another. That's what the labor movement is like. Jim Moylan was young, and saw Hal's mood. Don't misunderstand us, he cried. It's heartbreaking, but it's not in our power to help. We are charged with building up the union and we know that if we supported everything that looked like a strike we'd be bankrupt the first year you can't imagine how often this same thing happens hardly a month we're not called on to handle such a situation i can see what you mean said hal but i thought that in this case right after the disaster with the men so stirred the young irishman smiled rather sadly "'You're new at this game,' he said. "'If a mine disaster was enough to win a strike, "'God knows our job would be easy. "'In Barela, just down the canyon from you, "'they've had three big explosions. "'They've killed over five hundred men in the past year.' "'Hal began to see how, in his inexperience, "'he had lost his sense of proportion.' He looked at the two labor-leaders, and recalled the picture of such a person which he had brought with him to North Valley, a hot-headed and fiery agitator, luring honest working-men from their jobs. But here was the situation exactly reversed. Here was he in a blaze of excitement, and two labor-leaders turning the fire-hose on him. They sat quiet and businesslike pronouncing a doom upon the slaves of North Valley, back to their black dungeons with them. "'What can we tell the men?' he asked, making an effort to repress his chagrin. "'We can only tell them what I'm telling you, that we're helpless till we've got the whole district organized. Meantime they have to stand the gaff. They must do what they can to keep an organization.' but all the active men will be fired. No, not quite all. They seldom get them all. Here the stolid old German put in. In the last year the company had turned out more than six thousand men because of union activity or suspicion of it. Six thousand, echoed Hal. You mean from this one district? That's what I mean. BUT THERE AREN'T MORE THAN TWELVE OR FIFTEEN THOUSAND MEN IN THE DISTRICT. I KNOW THAT. THEN HOW CAN YOU EVER KEEP AN ORGANIZATION? THE OTHER ANSWERED QUIETLY. THEY TREAT THE NEW MEN THE SAME AS THEY TREATED THE OLD. HAL thought suddenly of John Edstrom's ants. HERE THEY WERE, BUILDING THEIR BRIDGE, BUILDING IT AGAIN AND AGAIN, AS OFTEN AS FLOODS MIGHT DESTROY IT, They had not the swift impatience of a youth of the leisure class, accustomed to having his own way, accustomed to thinking of freedom and decency and justice as necessities of life. Much as Hal learned from the conversation of these men, he learned more from their silences, the quiet, matter-of-fact way they took things which had driven him beside himself with indignation. He began to realize what it would mean to stand by his pledge to those poor devils in North Valley. He would need more than one blaze of excitement. He would need brains and patience and discipline. He would need years of study and hard work. End of section 19 Section 20 Hal found himself forced to accept the decision of the labor leaders. They had had experience. They could judge the situation. The miners would have to go back to work, and Cartwright and Alex Stone and Jeff Cotton would drive them as before. All that the rebels could do was to try to keep a secret organization in the camp. Jerry Minetti mentioned Jack David, He had gone back this morning, without having seen the labor leaders, so he might escape suspicion and keep his job, and help the union work. "'How about you?' asked Hal. "'I suppose you've cooked your goose.' Jerry had never heard this phrase, but he got its meaning. "'Sure thing,' said he. "'Cooked him plenty.' "'Didn't you see the dicks downstairs in the lobby?' inquired Hartman. I haven't learned to recognize them yet. Well, you will, if you stay at this business. There hasn't been a minute since our office was opened that we haven't had half a dozen on the other side of the street. Every man that comes to see us is followed back to his camp and fired that same day. They've broken into my desk at night and stolen my letters and papers." They've threatened us with death a hundred times. I don't see how you make any headway at all. They can never stop us. They thought when they broke into my desk they'd get a list of our organizers. But you see, I carry the lists in my head. No small task, either, put in Moylan. Would you like to know how many organizers we have at work? Ninety-seven and they haven't caught a single one of them. Hal heard him, amazed. Here was a new aspect of the labor movement. This quiet, resolute old duchy, whom you might have taken for a delicatessen proprietor, this merry-eyed Irish boy, whom you would have expected to be escorting a lady to a fireman's ball, they were captains of an army of sappers, who were undermining the towers of Peter Harrigan's Fortress of Greed. Hartman suggested that Jerry might take a chance at this sort of work. He would surely be fired from North Valley, so he might as well send word to his family to come to Pedro. In this way he might save himself to work as an organizer, because it was the custom of these company spotters to follow a man back to his camp and there identify him. If Jerry took a train for Western City, they would be thrown off the track, and he might get into some new camp and do organizing among the Italians. Jerry accepted this proposition with alacrity. It would put off the evil day when Rosa and her little ones would be left to the mercy of chance." They were still talking when the telephone rang. It was Hartman's secretary in Sheridan, reporting that he had just heard from the kidnapped committee. The entire party, eight men and Mary Burke, had been taken to Horton, a station not far up the line, and put on the train with many dire threats. But they had left the train at the next stop and declared their intention of coming to Pedro. They were due at the hotel very soon. Hal desired to be present at this meeting, and went downstairs to tell his brother. There was another dispute, of course. Edward reminded Hal that the scenery of Pedro had a tendency to monotony, to which Hal could only answer by offering to introduce his brother to his friends. They were men who could teach Edward much, if he would consent to learn, he might attend the session with the committee, eight men and a woman, who had ventured an act of heroism and been made the victims of a crime. Nor were they bores, as Edward might be thinking. There was blue-eyed Tim Rafferty, for example, a silent, smutty-faced gnome who had broken out of his black cavern and spread unexpected golden wings of oratory, and Mary Burke, of whom Edward might read in that afternoon's edition of the Western City Gazette, a Joan of Arc of the Coal Camps, or something equally picturesque. But Edward's mood was not to be enlivened. He had a vision of his brother's appearance in the paper as the companion of this Hibernian Joan. Hal went off with Jerry Minetti to what his brother described as a hash-house, while Edward proceeded in solitary state to the dining-room of the American Hotel. But he was not left in solitary state. Pretty soon a sharp-faced young man was ushered to a seat beside him, and started up a conversation. He was a drummer, he said. His line was hardware, what was Edward's. Edward answered coldly that he had no line, but the young man was not rebuffed. Apparently his line had hardened his sensibilities. Perhaps Edward was interested in coal-mines? Had he been visiting the camps? He questioned so persistently, and came back so often to the subject, that at last it dawned over Edward what this meant. He was receiving the attention of a spotter, Strange to say, the circumstance caused Edward more irritation against Peter Harrigan's regime than all his brother's eloquence about oppression at North Valley. End of section 20